Love to the brethren is also an affection which rests upon the union which believers sustain with Christ. The Lord Jesus, together with all true believers, forms one mystical body. Christ is a head, and they are the members. The same bond which unites believers to Christ binds them to each other. The love which is exercised toward the head extends to the members. The union necessarily involves a union of affection. Those who love Christ love those who are like Him, and those who are beloved by Him. Here all distinctions vanish. Name and nation, rank and party are lost in the common character of believers, the common name of Christian. Jew and Gentile, bonded free, rich and poor, are one in Christ Jesus. Galatians 3 verse 28 They have one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all, and through all, and in them all. Ephesians 4, 5, and 6 Actuated by the same principles, cherishing the same hopes, animated by the same prospects, laboring under the same discouragements, having the same enemies to encounter, and the same temptations to resist, the same hell to shun, and the same heaven to enjoy, it is not strange that they should love one another sincerely and often with a pure heart fervently. There is a unity of design, a common interest in the objects of their pursuit, which lays the foundation for mutual friendship and which cannot fail to excite the harmony of souls. The glory of God is a grand object which commands their highest affections and which necessarily makes the interest of the whole the interest of each part, and the interest of each part the interest of the whole. There are no conflicting interests, and there need be no jarring passions. In a common cause which in point of importance takes the place of every other and all others, the affections of the sanctified heart are one. The Lord Jesus has given peculiar emphasis to the duty of brotherly love by constituting it the easy and decisive standards of true godliness. It is by this standard that his disciples are to judge of themselves. We know, saith an apostle, that we have passed from death unto life because we love the brethren. 1 John 3.14 This is a criterion also by which he would have the world judge of the sincerity of their religion and the truth and divinity of his gospel. By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one to another. John 13.35 in that memorable prayer just before his death, he also prays for his disciples, that they all may be one, as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one, in as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. John 17:21. With this standard before him, may not every man ascertain whether he is a child of God? 
The love of good men is not one of the native affections of the carnal mind. This cold, degenerate soil bears no such heavenly fruit. The affection which Christians exercise towards each other as Christians is the offspring of brighter worlds. It is a principle of celestial birth. Love is of God, and everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. 1 John 4, 7 it cannot be difficult to distinguish this Christian grace from a mere natural affection or mercenary or sectarian attachment. A parent may love his child and a child his parent. A husband may love his wife and a wife her husband. And there may exist much in reciprocal affection between one man and another, while the personal religion of the party beloved constitutes none of the reasons of this affection. Persons may have been educated to esteem and respect pious men, while this respectful sentiment falls far below the love of men as Christians and for their Christianity. Men may love Christians merely because they imagine that Christians love them. This, like every other affection that is purely selfish, is unworthy of the Christian name. They may love particular Christians because they are of their denomination and imbibe their sentiments. This too is nothing better than that friendship of the world which is enmity with God. The obvious inquiry is, do you love the people of God because they are the people of God? Because you discover in them the amiableness of that religion which is altogether lovely? Do you love them, not merely because they love you or have bestowed favors upon you, not because they are of your party, but because they bear the image of your heavenly Father. Do you love them for their love of God, their self-denial, their heavenliness, their usefulness in the world, their reproachless example, their faithfulness and love of duty? Do you love them when they reprove you and when their example condemns you? And do you love them in proportion to the measure of these excellencies which they possess? Do you feel an interest in them and for them? Can you bear and forbear with them? Can you forget their infirmities, or do you rejoice to magnify them? Can you cast the mantle of charity over their sins and pray for them, and watch over them, and pity and love them still? And can you feel thus and act thus towards the poorest and most despised of the flock, and that because he is a Christian? If so, here is your encouragement. He that loveth is born of God. 1 John 4, verse 7 Separation from the World A convincing evidence of true piety is a spirit of separation from the world. Saints are expectants of glory. They are born from above and have no home beneath their native skies. Here they are strangers and pilgrims and plainly declare that they seek a better country. Hebrews 11 verses 13 and 14 It is their avowed profession that their happiness and hopes are neither in nor from the present world. Their treasure is in heaven. They are not of this world, even as Christ was not of this world. John 17:14. The spirit of the world is incompatible with the spirit of the gospel. 
It is the spirit of pride and not of humility, of self-indulgence rather than of self-denial. Riches, honors, and pleasures form the grand object of pursuit with the men of the world. Their great inquiry is, who will show us any good? Indifferent to everything but that which is calculated to gratify a carnal mind, they lift up their souls unto vanity and pant after the dust of the earth. Their thoughts and their affections are chained down to the things of time and sense, and in these they seem to be irrecoverably immersed. They seldom think, but they think of the world. They seldom converse, but they converse of the world. The world is the cause of their perplexity and the source of their enjoyment. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, and the pride of life close every avenue of the soul to the exclusion of every holy desire. I had almost said every serious reflection. The spirit the Christian has mortified now we, says St. Paul, have not received the spirit of the world, but the spirit which is of God, 1 Corinthians 2, verse 12. The disciple of Jesus, as he has nobler affections than the worldly, has a higher object and more elevated joys, while the wise man glories in his wisdom, the mighty man glories in his might, and the rich man glories in his riches. It is the Christian's privilege to glory in nothing save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto him, and he unto the world. Galatians 6.14 The character and cause of the blessed Redeemer lie so near to his heart, that in comparison with these everything else vanishes to nothing. He views the world by the eye of faith, and in a light that reflects its intrinsic importance, the light of eternity. There the world shrinks to a point, and the fashion of it passeth away. As the spirit of the world is not the spirit of God's people, so the men of the world are not their companions. We know that we are of God, saith the Apostle, and the whole world lieth in wickedness, 1 John 5.19. Between the people of God and the men of the world there is an essential difference of character. The views, the desires, and the designs of the children of God are diametrically opposite to the views, the desires, and the designs of the men of the world. The one loves what the other hates. The one pursues what the other shuns. Saints are passing on the narrow way which leads to life. Sinners the broad way which leads to death. Matthew 7, verses 13 and 14. If there were no other ground for the expectation, therefore, than the common principles of human nature, we might look for dissension rather than unity between the disciples of Christ and the men of the world. How can two walk together except they be agreed? Amos 3, verse 3. What fellowship hath light with darkness, or what communion hath Christ with Belial? Second Corinthians 6, verses 14 and 15 The same principles which prompt the men of the world not to select the people of God for their familiar companions also induce the people of God to choose other companions than the men of the world. There is an irreconcilable spirit between them. The friendship of the world is enmity with God, James 4, verse 4. 
Many as may be mutual tokens of respect, civility, and kindness, and many there should be, between Christians and the men of the world, they are notwithstanding two distinct classes of men. Much as Christians esteem the men of the world as good members of civil society, much as they regard their happiness and endeavor to advance it, much as they have compassion on their depravity and deplore their prospects, much as they are conversant with them in the ordinary calls of duty, still they are not their chosen companions. They cannot court their friendship because they are afraid of it. Evil communications corrupt good manners. 1 Corinthians 16, verse 33. He that walketh with wise men shall be wise, but a companion of fools shall be destroyed. Proverbs 13, verse 20. Those who have mortified the Spirit, and who stand at a distance from the men of the world, are also in some good degree above its corrupting influence. The claim, which from their numbers and strength the world is apt to consider itself, is warranted to make upon the opinions and practices of God's people, is habitually resisted. Though good men may be often seduced by the smiles and awed by the frowns of the world, it is no part of their general character to conform either to its pleasure or displeasure. They act from higher motives and maintain a more consistent character than to give way to indulgences merely for the sake of pleasing the world or to avoid duty merely through the fear of offending it. While they regard the fear of God more than the fear of man, they will not dishonor God to please the world. And while they regard the favor of God more than the favor of man, they will not purchase the favor of man at the expense of the favor of God. An habitual regard to the will and the favor of God is an effectual security against the smiles of the world. The great object of the Christian is duty his predominant desire to obey God. When he can please the world consistently with these, he will do so. Otherwise, it is enough for him that God commands and enough for them that he cannot disobey. While they dread to offend God, they cannot tamely bow to the favor or frowns of men. Whether it be right to hearken unto men rather than unto God, judge ye, Acts 4, verse 19 there would be no difficulty in pointing out the path of duty upon this subject, but there is some in saying how far man may swerve from this path and yet be Christians. One thing is plain. Christians cannot be worldlings. They cannot be lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. Second Timothy 3 verse 4 He who fixes his highest affections on wealth honor, sensual pleasures, gay amusements, and the various pursuits of the present scene cannot fix them supremely on God. Nor is the character of the vast multitude who attempt to make a compromise between God and the world better than that of the mere worldling. The mere fact that they are forever balancing between a life of devotion and a life of pleasure that they design now to yield the empire to God and then to the world, decides the question against them. We may not deny that the children of God are sometimes guilty of awful defection from the standard of Christian character in their intercourse with the world. 
but after all, their prevailing feelings and conduct are not those of conformity to the world, but of habitual non-conformity. The principles of the new man are at war with the principles of the world. True believers have put off concerning the former conversation of the old man, which is corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and have put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. Ephesians 4.22-24 This I say then, saith the Apostle, Walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. Galatians 5.16 We cannot walk after the flesh while we walk after the Spirit. While the love of God is the reigning affection of the heart, it will turn away from the allurements of the world. This subject presents a number of solemn questions to everyone who is anxious to ascertain whether his heart is right in the sight of God. It is a great point with all of us to know whether we are spiritually minded or worldly minded, whether we are conformed to this world or transformed by the renewing of our minds, whether the objects of faith or of sense, things present or to come, have the predominating influence over our hearts. What should we say of those who exhibit to themselves and to others all the traits of character which belong to worldly men? What of those who pursue worldly things with all that ardor, all that intemperate zeal which enters into the pursuits of worldly men? Is there not reason to fear that they are supremely attached to earth and are as yet aliens from the commonwealth of Israel? What should we say of those who love the circles of fashion more than the associations for prayer, and who court the friendship of the rich, the gay, and the honorable more than that of the humble disciple of Jesus? What of those who send forth their little ones like a flock, and their children dance, who take the timbrel and harp and rejoice at the sound of the organ? Job 21 verses 11 and 12. Was Job uncharitable when he ranked persons of this character with those who say unto God, Depart from us, for we desire not the knowledge of thy ways? What should we say of those who are forever varying from the path of duty lest it should be unpopular, who never lisp a syllable or lift a finger for the honor of God, lest they displease the world? What but that they love the praise of men more than the praise of God? John 5, verse 44. Conformity to the world is to be expected from the professed worldling. It is the character of the worldling. But is it to be expected from the professed disciple of Jesus? Is it the result of habitual determinations of a heavenly mind? Is it the character of one who looks on things that are unseen and eternal, of a stranger and sojourner, of one who sets his affections on things above and not on things of the earth? How many, like the young man in the gospel, exhibit a decent and regular outward profession who are wholly devoted to the world, hear their affection center? From this polluted fountains all their joys flow. They had been Christians but for the world. But, but the world is a fatal snare. They have plunged down the precipice and drifted almost beyond the hope of recovery. If any man loved the world, 
the love of the Father is not in him. 1 John 2, verse 15. To be carnally minded is death. Romans 8, verse 6. Show me the men who imbibe the spirit of the world, who choose the company of the world, who imitate the example of the world, conform to the maxims of the world, are swallowed up in the gaiety, fashions, and amusements of the world. Behold, these are the ungodly who are brought into desolation as in a moment. I have seen the wicked in great power, spreading himself like a green bay tree. Yet he passed away, and lo, he was not. Yea, I sought him, but he could not be found. Psalm 37, verse 35. Growth in grace. How beautiful is the light of the morning. Behold it hovering over the distant edge of the horizon and shedding its cheerful beams upon the hills. It is a morning without clouds. But how soon is the prospect overcast? The atmosphere is obscured by vapors and the sun is darkened by a cloud. Again the mists are fled. The clouds have passed over and the sun is still advancing in his course. Thus he rises now behind the cloud, now in all the greatness of his strength, shining brighter unto the perfect day, such is the path of the just. In the present world, good men are very imperfect. The best of men have reason to complain bitterly of the body of sin and death. And the best of men, too, have the most ardent desires that the body of sin and death may be crucified with Christ. The highest point of Christian experience is to press forward. It is a distinguishing trait in the character of every good man that he grows in grace. There are various similitudes used by the inspired writers that are significantly expressive of the advancement of Christians in knowledge and in piety. The unconvert is likened unto one that is newly born. There is a point of time in which he begins to live. At first he is a babe, then a child, till he finally attains unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Ephesians 4 verse 13 the kingdom of heaven is also compared to seed which is cast into the ground. First cometh up the tender blade, then the thriving stalk, then the ear. After that the full corn in the ear, ripening for the harvest and preparing for the garner of the husbandman. Mark 4 verses 28 and 29. It is also compared to a well of water springing up into everlasting life. John 4 verse 14. No imagery in nature can more fully illustrate the growth of grace in the heart. The righteous, saith Job, shall hold on his way, and he that hath clean hands shall wax stronger and stronger. Job 17, verse 9. This is a prominent feature in the character of the good man. He shall hold on his way. The youth saith the evangelical prophet, shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fall. But they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary, and they shall walk and not faint. Isaiah 40, verses 30 and 31. With an inimitable beauty is a good man described by the psalmist. 
and he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. Psalm 1, verse 3. Grace in the heart as certainly improves and advances as a tree thrives in a kindly and well-watered soil. It flourishes in immortal youth and blooms forever in unfading beauty. The certainty of the believer's progress, however, rests on a surer foundation than either the degree or the nature of his religion. We are not sufficient, says the Apostle, to think anything as of ourselves, but our sufficiency is of God. 2 Corinthians 3 verse 5 Covenanted grace is a support of the believer through every step of his pilgrimage. There is nothing in the nature of holiness that is incapable of corruption. Adam fell, angels fell, and such is the awful depravity of the human heart that left to himself the holiest saint on earth would draw back unto perdition. Still, he shall progress in holiness throughout the interminable ages. It is the economy of divine grace that where God has begun a good work, He will carry it on until the subject is ripened for glory. Philippians 1 verse 6 The hypocrite, when once he imagines himself to be a Christian, views his work as done. He is satisfied. He is rich and increased in goods. But it is otherwise with the true Christian. Conversion is but the first step. His work is all before Him. His graces are increasingly constant and increasingly vigorous. The more He loves God, the more He desires to love Him. The more He knows of His character, does He contemplate the manifestations of His glory with rising delight. As the heart panteth after the water brooks, so doth His soul pant after God. Psalm 42 verse 1 Having once tasted that the Lord is gracious is not enough to satisfy him. He will ever remain unsatisfied till he reaches the fountainhead and drinks to the full of the river of life, which flows from the throne of God and the Lamb. Revelations 22 verse 1 The more he sees of the evil of sin, the more he desires to see. The more he hates it, the more he desires to hate it. The more he sees of himself, the more he abhors himself, and the more does he desire to abhor himself. The more he is emptied of himself, the more does he desire to be emptied of himself. The more he desires to become poor in spirit, to feel that he is cut off from every hope, and to rest on Christ alone. The more he is engaged in duty, the more delight he finds in performing it. The more severe his conflict with the enemy, the harder he urges it, and the more vigorous his resolution to maintain it to the last. There are some things in which the increase of grace is more visible, both to the world and the subject, than others. Particularly have the people of God less and less confidence in themselves. They cherish an increasing sense of their dependence. They have been so often disappointed in their false confidences that they have, in some good measure, become weaned from them. 
they know by bitter experience the folly of trusting to themselves and daily taste the sweetness of that heavenly precept. In all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy path. Proverbs 3, verse 6. They are more and more patient in sufferings. The more they are accustomed to the yoke, the less do they repine under the weight of it. They are also more and more charitable in the opinions of others. Young Christians are too often very uncharitable and censorious. They are more apt to take notice of the infirmities of their brethren than their graces, and the infirmities of others than their own. But the more they know of themselves, the more reason do they see to exercise charity towards others. They fear to judge lest they themselves should also be judged. Matthew 7 verse 1 They walk with all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love. Ephesians 4 verse 2 They have also the more full government of their passions. They are slow to wrath. James 1 verse 19 They are more and more punctual in the performance of the relative duties. Young Christians are apt to neglect them. They allow the duties they owe immediately to God to swallow up those that belong to their neighbors. But as they advance in the divine life, they become more uniform in the exercise of grace and more punctual in the discharge of all duty. They do not love God less, but they love their fellow men more. As they grow more fervent and more constant in their devotional exercises, so they become more circumspect and unexceptionable in their relationships with the world. Perhaps there is no one point in which growth and grace is more visible than in that harmony and consistency of character which are too often lacking in young Christians. But we shine with so much beauty in those who are advanced in the Christian course. In everything that belongs to the excellence of real religion, the true believer is in a state of progression. He seeks and strives, he wrestles and fights, he is ever aiming at the prize. View him in the early part of the divine life. Follow him through the various stages of his progress, and you will find that, notwithstanding all his doubts and declensions, he makes a gradual advance. He does not feel, he does not act, as though he had already attained, either were already perfect, but he follows after, if he may apprehend that for which also he is apprehended of Christ Jesus. Philippians 3 verse 12 This one thing I do, says Paul, forgetting the things which are behind and reaching forth to those things that are before, I press toward the mark of the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Philippians 3, verses 13 and 14. Where is the Christian that does not make the spirit of the apostle his own? Tell me, ye who have just begun the heavenly race, tell me, ye who are verging toward the goal, was there ever a Christian that felt satisfied with present attainments? Is not the unvarying voice, both of early and long-tried piety, responsive to the language of Paul? Yet it is both the highest point of Christian experience and the clearest evidence of Christian character to press forward.
It is his grand inquiry how to be and how to live more like a child of God. Mark the way of the upright. As you trace his steps through this dreary pilgrimage, sometimes he wanders from the path. Sometimes he halts and tires. His progress is far from being uniformly rapid and often far from being perceptible either by himself or others. Sometimes his motion is retrograde. There are seasons when, instead of advancing, he is the subject of great defection. Still, it is true that on the whole he advances. If you compare his present state and character with what they were a considerable length of time past, you will find that he has made gradual progress. I know there are seasons, dark and gloomy seasons, seasons of guilt and declension, when the real Christian will make this comparison at the expense of his assurance. Seasons of guilt and declension ought to be the seasons of darkness. I know, too, there are seasons when he is liable to discouragement because he does not always experience that light and joy which crowns the day of his conversion. There is a glow of affection, a flush of joy, which is felt by the young convert as he is just ushered into the world of grace, which perhaps may not be felt at any future period of his life. You cannot draw from this the inference that he has made no advance. All this may be true while there is a power of feeling and a strength of affection in the saint who has passed through the wilderness and knows the trial of the way to which the unconvert is a stranger. As he ascends the mount, his eye is fixed, his step is more vigorous, and the path brighter and brighter. He remembers his devious steps and how he traced him back with tears. But the trials of the way are forgotten. He is risen to that brightness of purity which sheds the luster of eternity on his character in aiming at the crown of righteousness which fadeth not away. Here, then, is another test of the genuineness of your religion. I am aware that it is a severe one but it is one which bears the seal of truth, and we must not shrink from it. Professing Christians are apt to place too much confidence on their past experience, and think little of the present, to think much on what they imagine to have been their conversion, their first work, and then give up the business of self-examination and allow themselves to droop and decline. But the question is, what is your present character? Grace is the evidence of grace. I know it is true that he who is once a Christian is always a Christian, but it is also true that he who is not now a Christian never was a Christian. Examine yourselves, therefore, whether ye be in the faith. 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5 The best evidence in the world that you are is that you grow in grace. No man living in spiritual sloth and making no new advances ought to flatter himself that he is a partaker of the blessings of the great salvation. The man who is satisfied because he thinks he is safe, who feels that he has religion enough because he thinks he has enough to save him from hell, is as ignorant of the power as he is a stranger to the consolation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Practical Obedience 
After all that has been said of the great evidence of vital piety is practical obedience. The character of men is to be decided by their conduct. I maintain this to be the great scriptural test of true religion, and it is a rule of judging which is always infallible. The conduct of men is governed by their hearts. Out of the heart are the issues of life. Proverbs 4.23 A good heart will produce good conduct, and a corrupt heart will produce corrupt conduct. The rule is infallible. By this I do not mean that it is always infallibly applied. A rule may be ever so perfect, and yet by inability, unskillfulness, or error may be misapplied and lead to a wrong decision. Still, this does not impair the infallibility of the rule. Nothing as regarded by men is more certain than that a good tree will bear good fruit, and that a corrupt tree will bear corrupt fruit. Matthew 12, verse 33. And it is equally certain that a good heart will produce good practice, and that a corrupt heart will produce corrupt practice. Those dispositions of the heart which are right are so, because from their nature they lead to right conduct. And those dispositions of heart which are wrong are so, because from their nature they lead to wrong conduct. We have, therefore, absolute certainty. If the conduct be good, the heart is good, and on the other hand, if the conduct be bad, we have the same certainty that the heart is bad. Men adopt no other standard of character in the common concerns of life, and they know no other. A man who is fettered by no external restrictions and who is left free to act will act according to his desires and affections. If we see a man supremely and habitually engaged in the pursuit of wealth or honor or pleasure, we are never at a loss to know where his heart is. And the principle holds with respect to everything. As the practice is, so is the heart. If therefore we know the practice to be good, the conclusion is infallible that the heart is good. And if we know the practice to be bad, the conclusion is as incontrovertible that the heart is bad. This is a test also which is peculiarly easy in its application. Were the inward sentiments or emotions of the soul the only test of character, we should have been peculiarly liable to self-deception. But there is by no means the same liability to deception when we judge of the nature of our feelings by our conduct. When a man says he desires and delights above all things to serve God, let him try the reality of his desire by asking whether he actually serves him. How sure the test! How comparatively easy to form a decision! What plainer principle than this! The tree is known by its fruit. Matthew 12, verse 33. The scriptures assign peculiar importance to this test of religious character. God knows the blindness of the human heart and the strange exposure to self-deception in men. He has, therefore, provided that the reality of those dispositions which we profess to cherish towards Him shall be clearly shown by corresponding conduct. Do you inquire, Who are the friends of Christ? He himself replies, Ye are my friends, if you do whatsoever I command you.
John 15:14 Do you ask who are those that love the redeemer He himself replies He that loveth me keepeth my commandments John 14:23 Do you ask how shall we know that we possess a saving knowledge of the redeemer You are informed that Hereby do we know that we know him, if we keep his commandments. 1 John 2, verse 3. Would you know the evidence of hostility to Christ? He says, He that loveth me not keepeth not my sayings. John 14, verse 24. Would you know who are they that are deceived and deceivers? The scripture says, He that saith he knoweth him, and keepeth not his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. 1 John 2, 4 Would you become acquainted with the grand line of demarcation between saints and sinners? The Bible tells you, In this the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. He that doeth not righteousness is not of God. 1 John 3, verse 10 Would you know what will be regarded as a grand rule of trial at the last day? The scriptures inform you that without respect of persons, the Father will judge every man according to his works. 1 Peter 1.17 When the beloved disciple in the visions of Patmos saw the sea give up the dead scrolls which were in it, and death and hell give up the dead which were in them, they were judged every man according to his work. Revelations 20, verse 13. So that the test of character to which we allude has received from the great searcher of hearts the decided preeminence. The blindness, prejudice, and carelessness of men can scarcely mistake the result of a trial by this criterion. Men say what they please about religion. They may be ever so orthodox in their creed, and ardent in their affections, and sanguine in their hopes. But if they yield not themselves unto God, is those that are alive from the dead. If they bring not forth the fruits of holy obedience, their faith is in vain. They are yet in their sins. By their fruits ye shall know them. Matthew 7, verse 20. Grapes never did grow on thorns, nor figs on thistles. Informing our estimate of the nature of holy obedience, the scriptures must be our only guide. A man may be very good according to the world's standard, who is very bad according to the standard of the Bible. When we inquire into the nature of that obedience which constitutes the great evidence of Christian character, it is important to turn our attention to two or three particulars. In the first place, it has respect to all God's commandments. The great error into which men are apt to fall is that of taking a partial view of the fruits of holiness. Some highly extol those which relate to our duty to man and lay little or no stress upon the piety towards God. Others lay the whole stress upon acts of piety and devotions and, where these are found, make very large allowances for the absence of everything else. Others again direct all their attention to views and feelings and to a particular process through which a man may have passed in attaining his present confidence and joy while few take into consideration the fullness of the Christian character or recognize the necessity that it should be complete in all its parts. 
though it is imperfect in degree. Now all this is wrong. And it is so because it is a partial mode of judging and is very apt to lead to an erroneous judgment. The true method is to comprehend all the fruits of righteousness, to bring into account all the duties of religion, to compare our character with all the precepts of the Bible, both those which relate to God, to our neighbor, and to ourselves. And if this entire character belongs to us, then does our conduct demonstrate the genuineness of our piety. If a man say, I love God, and hateth his brother, he is a liar. For if he loveth not his brother whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? First John 4 verse 20. If a man makes high profession of his inward religious experience, while disregarding the claim of justice, kindness, honesty, and truth towards his fellow men, he is deceived and knows as little of the power of godliness in his heart as the fruits of godliness in his life. Neither a regard to one precept of the law or to another affords evidence of piety, but a regard to the whole. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D, M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said 
that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.